All right, so um, the class is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. We've been talking about Jesus in context. And the goal ultimately is, in a sense, to think more Jewish. Try to, try to approach the Gospels in the text in a more Jewish way, because Jesus was a Jewish rabbi in Israel, in a Jewish context. And so that is uh, kind of the motivation behind the class. With that in mind, we've been starting every class with the Shema. Shema means hear or listen from uh, the depths of your heart with all of your soul and might. The rabbis believed in saying Shema, you were declaring that the kingdom of heaven would come in full force right here among you in the place where you're at. And so when we stand and we say this together, we say it with passion and energy that the kingdom of heaven would come into this room at this time for the next 40 minutes uh, and, and change us. So let's stand and say Shema together uh, as Jesus would every day and then stand and read uh, the scripture following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, you may be seated. A few weeks ago, uh, we discussed what it takes to become a Jewish rabbi, uh, which Jesus was. It was an all-consuming emphasis on the scriptures and not only knowing them, but living them out, that the story of God would come through in what you said, in what you did, how you thought. It was an all-consuming emphasis on the scriptures. And to become a Jewish rabbi, you had to do five things. Learn the text, pray the text, teach the text, live the text, and die the text. If you do all five, you became the text, or as John says in the first chapter, the word made flesh. So rabbis were consumed with the scriptures. The other big thing that rabbis did is that they would make disciples. They would take on disciples, a handful of men uh, or women in some cases, to become like them. I would like to quickly point out too that there is a difference in being a student and being a disciple. Students want to know what the teacher knows. Maybe it's just for a grade, but for those who are more serious, we want to know what the teacher knows. Pass along your intelligence and your wisdom. A disciple, on the other hand, is different than that, and it's more consuming. 
A disciple wants to become what their teacher is. They want to become what their rabbi is. They want to say things that they would say. They want to sound like them. They want to treat others like them. And they want to interpret the text the way the rabbi does. Disciples want to know, okay, so here's the scripture. How do you, rabbi, how do you understand these verses in this context? Uh, I heard a story about um, an older rabbi walking through Jerusalem and his young disciples behind him. And this older rabbi is walking down the streets with a hunched back. He's walking around like this. And his young disciples, who are young and healthy and fit, are walking around just like him, behind him. That's That's what it means to be a disciple. Become just like the rabbi. You want to be around your rabbi every minute of every day. You don't want to miss the tiniest things that they do. You, you follow your rabbi into the bathroom because you want to know what is, what is my rabbi going to pray after he goes to the bathroom. And there's a prayer for that. So the prayer, by the way, I'll just give you the prayer is, <laughs> that's going to be the first question. What do you think of this whole thing? What do they pray? Um, the prayer is, uh, dear Lord, I bless you for giving us openings in our bodies so that we can go to the bathroom. Which is really funny, but then, but you think about, again, the Jewish way is the very spiritual is very physical. So, so consider the spiritual implications of getting the uncleanness out of your body. We need to get the uncleanness out of our soul and our hearts as well, right? Jesus has a similar teaching about clean hands. Are you about to say something? Um, we're going to get into that in a second. Yes, good question. Um, a few questions to start. Does it matter how you interpret the Bible? What do the greatest commands have to do with the rest of the Bible? Are Pharisees good people, and would you want to be called one of them or associated with them? And then do you read or even care that much about the book of Leviticus? Um, <laughs> My, my grandma, uh, she's, she just turned 97, and she's, she's all there. And she, uh, she'll read the Bible through multiple times a year. She usually starts in January, finishes in April. And her advice always is start with the New Testament, because if you start with the old, you're going to hit Leviticus and die out. <laughs> so, All right. Um, from what we read in the Sermon on the Mount... Which commands matter? So the Torah, the Torah has 613 commands. And Jesus says that not one jot or tittle will fail. It will not pass away. Now the jot and the tittle, the smallest marks in the Hebrew language, the smallest marks in here, Jesus says, they all matter. Everything matters down to the tiniest little mark. Not just the words of God, but the shapes of the words of God have full, the full power of God. And Jesus says, not one of them will pass away. I think to the question that you asked, so how does it matter how you interpret the Bible? Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill. This rabbinic language used at the time, and 
So maybe, maybe Rabbi Joel would say about Exodus 21, verse 6. Quote the verse and then may probably tell a little story or parable or illustration to explain how to carry out that verse. So Rabbi Joel would say, Exodus 21, duh, 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 duh. this means you should, duh, 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 duh. and then he would say, but Rabbi Mark has a different interpretation. And Rabbi Mark abolishes the Torah by misinterpreting this verse in this way. So if you misinterpret the verse, it cannot be obeyed correctly. So you abolish the Torah. To fulfill the Torah, on the other hand, means you interpret a, a text or a command correctly so that it can be obeyed in the way that God desires. So abolish means you misinterpret and therefore it cannot be obeyed correctly. To fulfill the Torah means you interpret a verse in this way so that we can follow through in the way that God desires uh, us to follow through. Jesus also talks about whoever breaks the least of the commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says basically all 613 commandments matter. Become the text. Don't become the text that you like. Don't ignore the text that seems hard. Become the full text. And Jesus, our rabbi, uh, is saying all of Torah matters. An example from another rabbi who is a disciple of Jesus, Paul, says to the Ephesians, uh, talks about the first command with the promise, which is uh, Deuteronomy 5 here in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother as the Lord God, your God has commanded you that, and then a reward. Okay, so it's a big command. If you grew up in the church, it's a big deal. You know, you know this command, right? This is a huge deal, and it's in the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the entire covenant that God made with Israel. Okay, a more obscure text that, for some of you, this is probably the first time you've ever heard of this, and that's okay. In Deuteronomy 22, if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young one or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother Go and take the young for yourself, that, and then a promise or a reward. Okay, so Jesus says, not only take the greatest commands seriously, but take the least of the commands seriously. Interpret those correctly, all right? The reward for honoring your father and mother, one of the big ones, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you. All right, so a big deal, right? Big command, big reward, the first command with a promise. Okay, what about if you're walking along the street and there's a nest with a bird and some eggs? Okay, that's a weird one. It's very obscure. The reward, it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. All the commands matter, even how you treat the little bird on the, on the street with the eggs. All of them matter. At least that's how our rabbi understands it. Then he also says in here that your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. So my question then is, is that are you setting a high bar for us or a low bar for us? 
Now, I grew up thinking, and it's, I, I still see it in today's Christian context, that the bar to be, more, to be better than Pharisees is like on the ground, like you can roll over it in your sleep, right? The Pharisees are they're scumbags. They're horrible people. They're faking it all the time. You can't trust them. They're always accusing and accusing and asking these questions to trap Jesus. But uh, Pharisee means separate or separated from sinfulness. And Pharisees sought holiness uh, and obedience to God in response to God's mercy. The minority of Pharisees were hypocrites. The minority. The majority of Pharisees were awesome people. In reality, it would be a compliment if I said, you're a Pharisee. Because most Pharisees are awesome. Pharisee does not equal hypocrite. Pharisees wanted to obey God and be a part of God's movement from the tiniest things to the greatest and most important things. Watering the flowers, opening a door, saying your prayers, giving money to the poor. Most Pharisees were awesome people. Why would you say a small minority were hypocrites? Uh, well, I guess, are you calling out the redundancy of my uh, English there? <laughs> or are you well, saying... I'm just, I'm just trying to understand why... A, I, I, because I think I'm a Pharisee. I think the church is fully hypocrites. Um, We're just admitting it. Yeah. Are you a hypocrite or a Pharisee? As well as a Pharisee? You can call me anything. (laughs) I'm asking you. I mean, I think Pharisaical is is legalistic, basically. I just don't understand. Yeah, I think so. So so historically, most most of the commentary about Pharisees is very positive. And Jesus even says, the Pharisee, before he launches into the seven woes in Matthew 23, He says, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, which is a big deal. He's not like trying to destroy Pharisees completely, but he does criticize the minority of them who are hypocrites, who are faking it. And it's interesting because in some Jewish commentaries, a lot of the criticism that Jesus levels against the minority, against the hypocrites, the Pharisees would say about themselves. So the the righteous Pharisees, the majority, called out the actors for their hypocrisy. So Jesus never really criticizes their theology or beliefs. He criticizes uh, some of the extra layers that some of the hypocrites put on uh, to the the Torah. Um, And he's criticizing the handful of them who are faking it. So... In a sense, I guess what I'm trying to say is factually and historically, it's inaccurate for us to be criticizing Pharisees as a whole. But the minority, in the minority, yeah, there were people who were faking it, who weren't the real deal. And when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, the people in that context would have heard this rabbi saying, the bar is up here and we have to be more than that? You're saying you take the Torah more seriously than them? It's a high bar when Jesus says your righteousness must go beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. 
so we come to uh, a big issue of their day, and maybe we wouldn't say it this way, but it's a big issue uh, today as well. Uh, who is my neighbor? So in Luke 10, uh, we'll, be, you know, we'll go through this, the Good Samaritan, and a famous story that uh, hopefully you'll get some new insight and revelation about. It says, in your Bible, it probably says lawyer. It's really a theologian, not a lawyer as in the legal system that we understand it today. Lawyer then would mean someone who is obsessive to learn and obey the Torah, the law, uh, as our Bibles would translate it. Um, So a theologian who would more closely align with the Pharisees uh, in that day. Theologian comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not talking about the afterlife when he asks this question. Eternal life in that day meant the abundant life lived in unison with God, obeying what uh, he commands us to do. The full life is doing what God commands and asks of us to do. This is really, in, in a sense, it's not different than, remember, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? It's important to follow through on what God commands of us. So Jesus says, what is written? How do you read it? So our rabbi says, what's in the text? How do you interpret it? It's very different, I think. I think it's very different than saying, well, what do you think it is? How do you feel? They go... Jews go straight to the text first. What does God say? God, what God says, God's words are better than my words. So how do you understand it? How do you read it? The theologian says what we uh, said at the beginning of class. He quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Most Jews would agree with that. Most Jews would say, yeah, of course, Shema, that's the most important thing. He then says, and love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Most Jews at the time would agree with that as well. Those are the two most important commands on the list of 613. Um, some, some rabbis had different interpretations, though, of that. Some rabbis would say, love your neighbors yourself, is down the list a little bit further. And so that's what Jesus is about to get to when he tells this story. This is, the, this is why abolishing and fulfilling Torah is a big deal. 613 commandments, sometimes they're going to come into conflict with one another. So how do we handle those situations? How do you, how does our rabbi interpret that? This is kind of a dumb question. What's the, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This is, this is pretty obvious. And Jesus says, you got it. You're right. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. And Pharisees would also uh, agree with Jesus here. And the theologian then asks a question in order to justify himself. However, a phenomenal question that leads to an even better story. The theologian says, who is my neighbor? Now, that's a good question. The question, who is my neighbor, in a sense, is this man asking, how do you interpret Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18? 
Which brings up the question again for us, how many of us have thought about the book of Leviticus this past week? Or this past month? Right? Or, you know, given any serious thought to the past in, in some amount of time to the book of Leviticus. Jesus knows this text well, and uh, this is a story interpreting um, different parts of Leviticus. So scene one, uh, Jesus launches into the story as a rabbi would. He's not going to give you just a direct answer. He'll launch into a story or a question. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is a reference to the Jericho Road, which is a notoriously dangerous road. Uh, People who are listening to the story would be thinking, yeah, it's pretty, there's a decent chance you would get attacked by a band of renegades on this road. It would be kind of like someone visiting town this morning and saying, I was on Broadway last night and it was just really crazy. A lot of people, a lot of music. And we would go, of course, yeah, <laughs> duh. It's, it's like that every weekend. The Jericho Road also is about 18 inches wide. It's a very narrow road. And a lot of it, there's a steep cliff right off the edge of it. The thieves do four things. They strip him of his clothing. They wounded him. They left him. Uh, They took his money and left him half dead. Half dead here. We'll explore this in a minute. He's on the verge of death. He's practically dead. The way they would understand it and the way this is told would imply uh, that he's he's basically dead. Continuing on with the story. Now by chance... A certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. The priest and the Levite, the priestly class, would mostly represent the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in general, you can think of as the opposite of the Pharisees. Okay, again, the Pharisees, the minority were hypocrites. The majority were very good, devout people. Sadducees were the opposite. You may have had a minority of priests who were good people, but the majority were in it for the money and control of the temple. So, the Sadducees rejected oral Torah or therefore the interpretations of the text. So what we have in our Bible uh, is the written Torah. The oral Torah is a collection of interpretations about the written Torah. How do we obey this? How do we fulfill this? So the, the Sadducees, written Torah only, take it literally, do what it says, don't try to interpret it for different situations. The Pharisees, on the other hand, accepted the written Torah, and they referred to the oral interpretations as well because they want to know, okay, how do we obey these different commands in different situations? So they would look to the oral Torah as a good, uh, as the, as a good source of how to be obedient and how to be holy. The man is half dead. 
uh, he is dying in agony. Okay. And the oral Torah, the interpretations would say, every law in Torah may be broken if it will save a life. And again, the Pharisees accepted oral Torah. So they would have, they would have said, okay, you can help this person. This is how I interpret the Torah. You can help save this person's life. The Sadducees, on the other hand, again, this person is considered dead. So we look to Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21, verses 10 and 11. He who is high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body. So the priest and the Levite, as Torah literal people, see this verse about what they're supposed to be doing. They're, they understand the Torah as that they're not allowed to touch the man. It's totally possible. You shouldn't just blindly ream these guys for, not, for passing by on the other side. Again, the road is a foot and a half wide. Jesus is being sarcastic. I mean, these priests and Levite would literally have to step over the man. There's no other side to go on. And so when they do that, they may have tears coming down their eyes, feeling so bad that they can't help the person, but they're devoted to their understanding of the Scripture. And they are obeying God by not touching the dead body. And the audience who... These people hear parables from rabbis all the time. And it would generally be structured that the third person in this story would be the hero, and they would be expecting the hero to be a Pharisee. The theologian, who is closely aligned in the understanding of the Bible as Pharisees, the theologian is probably thinking, when Jesus comes to this point in the story, okay, he's about to validate me, he's about to validate my understanding of Scripture. He's about to validate my interpretation of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And of course, Jesus pulls the old switcheroo. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, to revisit, the first two people that came along, the priests, had to step over the man because they didn't want to be ritually impure because they rejected the interpretations of the text, Torah literal people, Leviticus 21, tells them, don't touch this dead body. Okay, Samaritans, remember, they're half Jews. They're half Jews. But Jews uh, hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. Um, I mean, Jew, most Jews in that day would say, Romans better than Samaritans. Lepers, better than Samaritans. We hate these people. They're impure. They've treated us horribly for centuries. These are not our people. 
And remember the question again is, who is my neighbor? That's the question Jesus is answering. So Samaritans were half Jews. They didn't reject Scripture completely. In fact, the opposite. What is the Samaritans understanding of the Scripture? Samaritans also rejected the interpretations of the text. Samaritans were written Torah only, literal understanding of the written Torah. So the priest and the Levite, in how they understand the Torah, put ritual purity way above the Samaritan who says, help my neighbor. The Samaritan interprets the Torah differently than the priests and the Levites here. The thieves do four things uh, to, this, to their victim here. And the Samaritan undoes all four of them. This is pretty neat if you look closely in this short little story. The thieves strip him of his clothing. The Samaritan bandaged his wounds by clothing him. The thieves wounded him. Uh, the Samaritan pours oil and wine on where he was beaten. The, th- the thieves left him. The Samaritan instead takes him to an inn. And the thieves robbed him and left him half dead. And the Samaritan pays for his care. The Samaritan undoes all four things that the thieves did to the man. Pretty awesome that Jesus, this is a really short story, embeds all these different things in such a short uh, space. And spur to the moment, right? Because this guy asks a question and our rabbi launches into a story to answer. This isn't like a planned sermon where he had like all week uh, to think about what he was going to say, you know, on Sunday at 1030. So my question I'll ask here, I think I bring this up every week uh, when I teach, is our rabbi Jesus, where does he get this story from? Right? Like if he makes it up on the spot, but is he pulling stuff out of thin air? Again, where is he getting the story from? The answer, rabbis who are all consumed with the text. Jesus is pulling this story from the text. So, I mean, everybody, this is what I think of it, like everybody, so the New Testament here and on, everybody in the New Testament on gets all their material, inspiration, how to make sense of who they are, what they are doing here by everything in the Old Testament. It all comes from the text. How do you read it, what is written, and how do you read it, and what is written? It all comes back to the text. So Jesus, to get this story, he's not pulling it out of thin air. He's not making it up out of nowhere. He's getting it, he's getting it from somewhere, and he's getting it from the text. Second Chronicles 28, there's a horrible king uh, leading Israel. And uh, God sends armies uh, after this king of Israel to wipe him out. One of the uh, leaders he sends after King Ahaz is Pekah, and he's in Samaria. Pekah comes, he kills 120,000 people in one day. And then he takes 200,000 captives from Israel and brings them back to Samaria. Now remember... It's still the same in Jesus' time. Samaria is a plot 
an area, a sector of Israel in the whole country. So Samaria within the country of Israel. So Pekah takes 200,000 captives and takes their stuff back to Samaria. And along the way, a prophet named Oded confronts him and says, what are you doing? This is not what you were supposed to do. God did not tell you to do this. Make it right. Fix it. So this army of Samaria, they designate some men to look over the captives and fix it. And they do four things. They clothe the naked among them. They give them food and drink. They anoint them. And they return the captives to Jericho and let the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So, how many of you think about when you hear the Good Samaritan, oh, 2 Chronicles 28, yeah, that's what Jesus is talking about, right? I mean, this is what the Samaritan does to the victim on the road, takes him back to, uh, takes him back to Jericho. Pretty awesome stuff. So we come back to the story that Jesus is telling. Jesus asks a question at the end of telling the story, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the theologian said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. He basically says, go and love the one who showed mercy, which would be the Samaritan. Go and love the Samaritan. Your, your Samaritans in your land, they're, your, they're not your enemy. They are your neighbor. This is really not a story about helping people. This is a story about breaking down the barriers of race, right? And choosing people to love based on a title for a whole group of people. In a sense, I hope that maybe something you're picking up on is when you hear the word Pharisee, you don't write them off as bad people, even though we don't have them around. Or priest and Levite, you don't just write them off because they pass by on the other side. Don't just write off people because of a name for an entire group of people. I would make a comment here, too. There's one interpretation, I think, this theologian can't even say to himself, go love the Samaritan. Right? It's just too painful. It's too hard. That's one way of saying it. Or you can say, maybe this theologian, under, he, he had a profound shift after hearing this story. And this, and this theologian is not defining people by their race anymore, but he's defining them by the virtues that they show. I would much rather people say about me, you know, Stephen, you know, he's an American. Go love the American. Instead, I wish they would say, Stephen, he's a really merciful person. Go love him. So again, don't even judge the theologian here for this answer, maybe, because maybe he gets it. Maybe he actually gets it. Uh, we're getting near the end. I got one more thing. Uh, and then I uh, would love to hear any thoughts or questions. Remember, this is an interpretation of Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Jesus, I think, in the way he answers this question, love your neighbor and love your enemy, 
Uh, I think he's trying to help this theologian and whoever else is around him to look on the other column on your page. There's more there in Leviticus 19. Or for, you know, scroll down. There's more there. Keep looking because Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, a few verses down. Think about Samaria, a sector of Israel. If the stranger dwells in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him, the stranger, as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am your God. Why love the strangers in your land? Because you also were strangers at one point. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy as yourself. Or a little further down, the answer is already there. Love the stranger as yourself. Uh, The questions we asked, and I think uh, at least took a decent attempt at answering. Does it matter how you interpret scripture? What do the greatest commands have to do with the rest of the Bible? Uh, About the Pharisees and about the book of Leviticus. Um, All right, we got a few minutes here, so I'd love to hear uh, any thoughts or questions or what this makes you think about um, that that was discussed. Yeah. Uh, Both Old and New Testaments say pay your workers the way (coughs) said you would pay. Uh, Some people take that to say in a very, I guess, legalistic way, I'm paying them the minimum wage, that's what they agreed to work for. Others with a more generous interpretation of scripture might say, but look at these other passages that say, be abundant, be overflowing, be generous. If we take the literalistic view though, we're, we're kind of like where these people have started from. Mm-hmm. So are you saying, so what, I guess what are you, what are you trying to? Well. Uh, if, if you run a business and people will work for $5 an hour, ignoring the law, is it okay to say, okay, I'll just pay you $5 an hour? What if you're highly profitable, you're the Walton family, you are multi-billionaires. Maybe you could readily afford to pay these workers $20 an hour and still be a billionaire. Do you take a literal interpretation, I'm doing what the scripture said, pay the workers their wages, I'm doing that. Yep. Or do you take a, a more abundant and generous interpretation that says, I'm going above and beyond the letter of the law? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I guess just from a high level, the Sadducees, you know, the literal interpret, you don't interpret. It says it, you, you do as little interpretation as possible and you try to do what the, the words and letters say. And I think the Pharisees, and Jesus, Paul shows the same pattern. John the Baptist, I think, shows the same pattern. How you interpret it in real time matters. Um, so I think from a high level, interpretations, interpretations matter. Stephen, mm-hmm. just repeat again your interpretation of Jesus' instruction. His instruction at the end of the parable was, go and do likewise. So he was instructing them 
So I, I think the original question was, go love your neighbor. So the man says, okay, so who is my neighbor? So who am I supposed to love? And I think Jesus is saying, love the third person who showed mercy, the Samaritan. Go love your enemy. That's how I... In other words, don't go and do like the Samaritan. I think he would say, yeah, like... But go and do like... I think he would... I think he's answering... The Samaritan is the hero of the story who who took care of the person who was hurting. Go be like that. Like the Samaritan. Yes. But I also think he's saying, go love the Samaritan. I think that's the main point, the main thrust. Is that's don't write. I, I think. Say, and I have trouble seeing that that is the interpretation. Mm-hmm. We have no idea, uh, unless I've missed something in here, what the injured person thought about the Samaritan. Do right. We? We don't and they, and he doesn't. And he also doesn't give that. He doesn't say the injured person is a Jew. Right. He we, identifies. We have very little information about the injured person's attitude, thinking. Right. Anything like that. Except, except he, Jesus is calling into question the Pharisaical reading, which says, "My neighbor is literally my neighbor in this Jewish neighborhood." Yes, that's my neighbor. Right. No one else. Well, a, a Samaritan couldn't possibly be that neighbor. Right. And that's and that's what he's throwing on his head. Yes, you should. Yeah, loving the stranger in your land right. matters. So Jesus is expanding. The fence of love. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, love the stranger. Just go, go back to the actual word Pharisee. Is it, a transliteration of that in English would be hagios, which would be holy, set apart. We call ourselves holy. We're set apart. That's what they thought being holy was, mm-hmm. setting ourselves apart, not talking to the Samaritan. Right. And Jesus is throwing that on. Yeah, he's changing the def- or helping them understand holiness. Yeah. And Leviticus is all about holiness. I don't think he's necessarily saying, like, don't help. I mean, he obviously, well, I mean, the Sadducees are saying, this person's half dead. He's nearly dead. So don't touch him or you would be impure. That's how some people would understand it. And Jesus is essentially saying, no, you have permission to break all the laws to help save this person's life. That's how the Samaritan understood it. Jesus said, I came not to break the laws, but to give them life. And this, they had made mercy a law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's saying it's about mercy. Mercy is broad. Right. Mercy is helping this guy. Mercy is touching dead bodies. Mercy is more than what you think it is. Mm-hmm. And it's not in the law. And I think that's his message. He's saying mercy's bigger than you think. God did give the right answer, the one who showed mercy, because that's the message. It's about mercy. Well, who can define the boundaries of mercy? No one in that crowd and no one in our crowd, you know, because if we start defining the boundaries of mercy, well, then, yeah, we become legalistic again, mm-hmm. either in written or in oral Torah. They can both become legalistic. But yep. He's saying, uh-uh. Mercy has no boundaries. Right. I mean, in a sense, maybe the Pharisees had a wider net than the Sadducees did. And he's saying, no, exceed that. 
More mercy than that. So to uh, take that into today's terms, and uh, uh, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, say, if you have, uh, if there are Islamic people that are in your, within your reach, that you treat them based on their mercy to others, not on their religion. Wait, okay, so what is your question? I'm sorry, I don't know if I'll... No, the question was, can that be extrapolated to today? And yeah, right. In that situation. Right. I think there are a lot of people who would say Muslim equals terrorist. Just the kind of the... And, and that's not fair. It's not right. There are some, <laughs> right? Yeah. But not everybody. Right. And Jesus is saying, don't write off people because of the title of their race or their country in one sense. So yes, I definitely think it has a lot to do with, I mean, there's some, there's some white people who are racist, but not all white people are racist. So you can't say, well, white people are racist. It's not true, you know. I think that's some of what's uh, being taught here. All right, thank you guys for being here. Enjoyed it, have a great week. <laughs>